chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, verses 1 to 13. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, page number is in the bulletin as usual, page 1004. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Let me read for us this morning. And he, that's Jesus, and Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Can you think of a time in your life when you had a mountaintop experience? Now, I enjoy climbing mountains myself, and so while we were up in New Hampshire uh, on our uh, vacation, I got up early one morning, climbed Mount Nanadnock, not far from where we were staying. It was quiet. Uh, just one or two other people up there with me, and the view was glorious. If you've been up there, supposedly you can see into all six New England states, uh, and you can see the Green Mountains of Vermont and the White Mountains up north in New Hampshire, uh, the birds circling in the sky, and so for 20 or 30 minutes I just sat up there and enjoyed the view. It was peaceful. It was refreshing. Now, there are many glorious experiences that... Uh, we can enjoy that don't necessarily involve climbing a literal mountain. Uh, maybe it's seeing the sunrise over the beach or walking through a redwood forest or looking up into the night sky. Maybe it's celebrating when the team you've been rooting for finally wins the championship or reconnecting with a friend who you haven't seen in decades or looking into the face of a newborn child or coming home after a long journey. Every one of those experiences, I think, is glorious in its own way. They, it, it's awe-inspiring. It sort of calls forth a mixture of joy and longing, of gratitude and hope. Now, all those experiences we might call mountaintop experiences. I would call those natural mountaintop experiences. In other words, anyone can experience those, regardless of whether they have faith in God or not. 
But Christians throughout history have also talked about spiritual mountaintop experiences, times when they particularly sense the presence of God, the power of God, in a particularly powerful and intimate way. So here's one description of a spiritual mountaintop experience. This is from Jonathan Edwards. He writes this. Once, as I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse to walk in divine contemplation and prayer, I had a view that was for me extraordinary. I saw the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man, and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love, and meek and gentle condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The person of Christ appeared with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour. This kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears, weeping aloud. I wanted to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him and to be made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. So that was Jonathan Edwards' spiritual mountaintop experience. Here's one more from the French mathematician Blaise Pascal. This was actually found, uh, this little description was found sewn into the pocket of his shirt after he died. He didn't talk about it while he lived, but it was a day that impacted him deeply, and it says, his description uh, includes this. It says, this day of grace in the year 1654 from about half past 10 at night to about half after midnight, 10.30 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. Fire, fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the wise. Security, security, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, thy God shall be my God. I have separated myself from him. I have fled, renounced, crucified him. May I never be separated from him. Renunciation total and sweet. So there are many examples one could give of these spiritual mountaintop experiences where people have encountered the greatness of God and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Some of you have shared with me about times in your own life where you felt like the veil was sort of lifted. The presence of God came near. You were filled with the Holy Spirit and God God rescued you, and, and, and you experience God's presence in a way that is very memorable, even if it happened a long time ago. Now, others of you might say, well, that's, that's interesting. Not sure I've had that kind of experience. That sounds a bit strange, maybe scary. Or you might say, I wish I had that kind of experience, but I haven't. Am I missing out on something? What are we to make of these mountaintop experiences? Whether they're natural mountaintop experiences or spiritual mountaintop experiences, if they're from God, what might be God's purpose in giving them to us? Well, that's the question I want to focus on as we look into this morning's passage. Uh, this morning's passage shows us three purposes of mountaintop experiences. Number one, mountaintop experiences reveal God's reality. Number two, mountaintop experiences prepare us for the valleys. And number three, mountaintop experiences are a preview of eternity. So number one, mountaintop experiences reveal God's reality. Now, in a general sense, this is true of any mountaintop experience, not only directly spiritual ones, 
Uh, Romans chapter 1 says God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So just a couple examples. Maybe you've looked up into the night sky and marveled, especially if you're out in the middle of the country a little bit, away from some of the city lights. Maybe you've marveled how amazingly vast this universe is. Isn't it amazing that somehow we're here and we can perceive it? And the Bible speaks about that feeling in Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Or maybe you've looked upon a newborn baby. Maybe your own child or a grandchild or a niece or nephew. And just marvel at the mystery of life and our participation in it. And the Bible speaks about that feeling too in Psalm 139. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You see, these are mountaintop experiences that are available to all humanity. These sort of glimpses of glory that are embedded in our daily lives. But they're all clues to pointing and pointing us to something bigger than ourselves. Pointing us to the reality of God himself. There's a wonderful poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins that begins with the line, The world is charged with the grandeur of God. And it's true, right? Just the world around us, the, the, the world that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis is charged with the grandeur and glory of God. John Calvin says it's a theater of God's glory, this world that we're living in. But you know what Jesus' disciples experienced on the mountain wasn't just a sort of general revelation of God's reality. It wasn't just a beautiful view after a long hike no, this experience was a specific revelation of Jesus and his unique glory. Uh, now, Mark, the gospel writer, focuses on the experience of the disciples. So if you notice uh, throughout the passage, verse 2, Jesus was transfigured before them. And uh, verse 4, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. Verse 5 and 6, focus on the disciples' reaction. Verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them. So the whole story is told from the vantage point of the disciples, their experience of this mountaintop glory, this vision, this, this, this uh, revelation of Jesus. So the question is, what were the disciples meant to see? Now, verse 2 says, Jesus was transfigured before them. Now that word transfigured, it doesn't mean transformed. It doesn't mean Jesus became something different than he was previously. It means that his figure, that is his outward appearance, changed. So his glory that was hidden became manifest. And Peter and James and John saw it in front of their eyes. And verse 3 emphasizes that this wasn't a natural experience. His clothes were intensely white like no launderer, literally it says no launderer on earth could bleach them. So this was a supernatural experience, not just a natural experience. Uh, and Jesus wasn't just an ordinary human being. He's the Lord of heaven, the Son of God himself. Then in verse 4, we see two of the greatest leaders of Israel's history appear along with Jesus, Elijah, the prophet Elijah, and Moses. Now, some people have asked why Elijah and Moses 
I think one reason could be in the Old Testament, both Elijah and Moses had gone up to the top of a mountain and met with God there. So Moses, uh, this is described in Exodus 24, Moses' experience. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and it says the glory of, uh, Exodus 24, verse 15 to 18, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, God called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And you might notice that Mark chapter 9, verse 2 says this happened after six days. And Mark doesn't usually tell us a specific number of days between events uh, until we get to very close to the crucifixion. Uh, so some people think Mark might be sort of reminding his readers that just as there was six days that led up to Moses experiencing God's glory, and then again, six days lead up to the disciples seeing God's glory in Jesus. Uh, and uh, it says Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And in 1 Kings 19, Elijah goes to the same mountain, and he also encounters the Lord there. But you know what? The transfiguration of Jesus wasn't just a repeat of these Old Testament experiences. No, this one surpassed all previous mountaintop experiences. Moses and Elijah were there, but Jesus outshined them both. Now, look at Peter's response in verse 5. <clears throat> Peter thinks this is great. Rabbi, it's good to be here. Let's build three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter wants to be up there for a long time. But Peter also seems to think that Jesus and Moses and Elijah are all about the same. Right? Build one for you, one for him, one for him. But if that's what he was thinking, Peter was deeply mistaken. Verse 6 says he didn't know what he was saying. So, you see, Moses and Elijah weren't shining with the glory of God. Only Jesus was. And what does God say in verse 7? He doesn't say, listen to Jesus or Moses or Elijah or any prophet you choose. No, he doesn't say that. He says, this one, Jesus Christ, is my beloved son. Listen to him. See, one of the purposes of this mountaintop experience was to reveal the uniqueness of Jesus to his disciples in a way that they wouldn't easily forget. So let me ask you, whether or not you have had a memorable, powerful, spiritual experience of the glory of Jesus, have you come to recognize the point that Jesus says, that the Father says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Have you come to recognize the uniqueness of Jesus? You see, uh, on the one hand, the New Testament emphasizes over and over that Jesus was fully human, just like the rest of us. He was hungry. At times, he was tired. He experienced, uh, he lived in a fully human body. He got thirsty. He experienced life. He experienced the heat. Experienced life in all the ways that we do. But on the other hand, the Gospels emphasize that Jesus was like no one else. He was fully divine. This is my beloved son. God saying that. Listen to him. And you know, no other leader of a major religion makes the same claim. So Moses never claimed to be the son of God. Muhammad didn't claim to be the son of God. Buddha didn't claim to be the son of God. All of these other leaders of major religions claim to be maybe a prophet, maybe a guru, maybe a teacher, a wise person. But only Jesus claimed to be 
the eternal son of God who could bridge that gap between God and humanity completely in his own person. And that through him we can be completely reconciled to God. Only Jesus makes that claim. So let me challenge us. Have we recognized the uniqueness of Jesus? And come to acknowledge and trust in that. So that's the first point. Mountaintop experiences reveal God's reality, but that's not the only thing they do. Second, mountaintop experiences prepare us for the valleys. Now, verse 7 says, listen to him, listen to Jesus. And so you might say, well, what has Jesus just been saying? Jesus doesn't say anything during this transfiguration. But what we looked at last week was Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to suffer and be rejected and be killed and then rise again. And you, as my followers, need, as, need to take up your cross and deny yourselves and follow me. Now, as we saw last week, Jesus' disciples didn't like that idea. They were very reluctant to embrace that message. They didn't want Jesus to suffer and die, and they themselves didn't want to suffer and be rejected and be killed either. They didn't like that idea. But Jesus said, no, this is how it has to go. We're going down into the valley. And in verses 9 through 13, Jesus affirms the plan hasn't changed. They were coming down from the mountain. Jesus says, don't tell anyone until I've risen from the dead. But of course, the disciples think, well, wait a minute. In order to rise from the dead, you have to be dead first. And we don't want you to be killed and die like you just said you're going to. So we don't know what to think about this rising from the dead. What does that mean? And so they ask him a question in verse 11. Why do the scribes say, the scribes were the religious scholars, the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Okay, you might say, what's that about? Well, in Jesus' day, the expectation was Elijah would come first, and then the Messiah would come back and put everything right. And you might say, where did they get this idea? Well, the last book in our Old Testament is the prophet Malachi, and the last chapter of Malachi says exactly this, Malachi, last two verses of Malachi. God says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. So the idea is Elijah would call God's people to turn from their evil ways and turn back to God's way in preparation for God himself or for the Messiah to come. Now, so the disciples say, well, wait a minute. If the Messiah is coming, Elijah is supposed to come first. And Jesus says, yes, that's right. Elijah does come first to restore all things. But then he says, it's also written in the prophets that the Son of Man will suffer many things. And Jesus uses, says Son of Man, he's referring to himself. And he's saying, the prophets also say that the Son of Man is going to suffer and be rejected and be killed. <coughs> Most likely Jesus was referring to Isaiah chapter 53. There's other passages as well. And then verse 13, Jesus goes on and says, But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. You might say, what does that mean? Well, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew gives a little more explanation here than Mark does. And Matthew explains Jesus was speaking to them of John the Baptist. 
see, John the Baptist was the promised Elijah figure. He wasn't literally Elijah resurrected, but he was a prophet in the line of Elijah. Okay, so if you read the Old Testament story of Elijah, Elijah's a prophet of God, and he's opposed by a wicked woman, Jezebel, and a wicked king, Ahab. And if you remember John the Baptist story that Mark tells, John the Baptist is opposed by a wicked woman, Herodias, and a wicked king, Herod. So they're both opposed, and John the Baptist gets executed. So Jesus says, see, same kind of thing that happened to Elijah happened to him. He's the promised Elijah who is to come, and I'm the Lord, the Messiah, who's to come after him. But you think I'm just going to come and be successful and victorious immediately. But no, I've got to suffer and die first and then rise again. We're going to the valley before we get to the end of the road. You see... What Jesus is saying is the road ahead will be much longer and much darker and much more winding and treacherous than you expect. But it's all part of the plan. And when I lead you through the dark valley, remember that you saw my glory on the mountain. So here's the lesson for us. The mountaintop glories prepare us for the dark valleys. We read earlier from the book of Revelation where John had that amazing vision of Jesus, his power and his glory, as well as his comfort and love and strength. But John had that vision when he was exiled on a lonely island. He was in a rough place. Now the Apostle Paul also talks about an amazing vision that he had of the third heaven and paradise itself. But then, guess what he goes on to talk about next? He says, God also gave me a thorn in my flesh. And I pleaded with God three times, take it away, Lord. And God said, my grace is enough for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. You see, the glory of the mountaintop and the darkness of the valley, it's a package deal if we're following Jesus. We can't just have the mountaintop glory and avoid the valley. That's what Jesus' disciples wanted to do. They wanted to stay up there on the mountaintop as long as possible. They did not want to go back into a dark valley. They thought this is it. And maybe this is the beginning of the Messiah's triumphant reign. And Jesus said, yes, in one sense you're right, but I'm going to the cross before the crown. So if you're in a dark valley, one person said, don't forget in the dark what God has shown you in the light. Sometimes it's helpful to think back to those mountaintop experiences, even if they feel long ago and far away. But the times where we, our eyes were opened and we really perceived God is glorious. He is greater than anything that I'm going through. And remember what God showed you up on the mountain. And remember that the same Jesus who the disciples saw on the mountain is the same Jesus who promises to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. He's the good shepherd, and he's going ahead of us every step of the way. And in fact, Peter remembered this experience when he was nearing the end of his life. He talks about it in his second 
letter, 2 Peter, chapter 1, and he basically says, I know I'm going to die soon, and then he remembers this experience. He says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We heard his voice born from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We were with him on the holy mountain. So if you're walking through a dark valley, don't forget what God has shown you on the mountain. Don't forget what God showed Peter and James and John on the mountain. So first, mountaintop experiences reveal God's reality. Second, mountaintop experiences prepare us for the valleys. And three, last point, mountaintop experiences are a preview of eternity. I think for some people, there can be a danger of expecting too much in this life. You know, some people expect God to constantly provide mountaintop experience after mountaintop experience. And they want to just be floating from one mountain to the next, to the next, to the next for their whole life. And so some people float around from one church to another and one Christian group to another because they're seeking that spiritual high. And sometimes it's really more of an emotional high. And so... These people can be very excited and very active for a season, but in the end, they can also crash and burn. And Jesus doesn't promise that every one of his followers that we will just go from mountaintop to mountaintop, from one experience of glory to another without the valleys. In fact, Jesus only invited three of his disciples to see his glory on the mountain. Now, this was like the experience to end all experiences, right? This was surpasses anything that any of us have seen. Uh, you know, Jesus was physically there with them in his human body and shining with divine glory. I mean, there's nothing that surpasses this. But only three Jesus invited, Peter, James, and John. The other nine he left at the bottom of the mountain. And he didn't repeat this for the other nine. Uh, it only happened once. So, there can be a danger of expecting too much in this life. Okay, and this passage reminds us that we won't all have the same experiences. Peter, James, and John, uh, you know, Jesus wasn't punishing the other disciples by not bringing them. Uh, in fact, we can, we can all benefit from this experience from Peter, James, and John's testimony. But I think for other people, there can also be a danger of expecting too little in this life. Some people can be prone to expect too much in this life in terms of mountaintop experiences, but others of us might be prone to expect too little. We might think, oh, those spiritual mountaintop experiences, those must be only for church leaders and apostles and sort of super Christians. Or maybe we might be prone to despise them and think, oh, those are for highly emotional people. But that's not true. The Apostle Paul was a scholar and an intellectual. Today we might call him a white-collar worker. And he prayed that we would know how long and how high and how deep and how wide is the love of Christ and be filled with that love that surpasses knowledge. And Peter was a fisherman. We might call him a blue-collar guy. And he said, we believe in Christ and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. So experiencing and 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 sort of glimpsing the glory of God is, a, is something that God gives to, can give to, gives to every kind of Christian in one form or another. Again, whether it's 
natural mountaintop experiences or spiritual mountaintop experiences. And James says sometimes we have not because we ask not. So we should pray that God would give us a clearer vision of the glory of Jesus. You know, I mean, we, we seek after all kinds of other experiences in this world that are exciting. Are we also asking God to show us more of his greatness and glory and help us to see a little more of him and fill our hearts with that glory? You know, Peter, James, and John didn't have this experience right away when they first met Jesus. They had this experience after they had been following him and listening to his teaching and uh, for quite some time. So sometimes God gives these kind of experiences after we spend extended time praying, meditating on God's word, listening to Jesus' teaching, following him. And, uh, and sometimes he gives us these experiences when we need that special encouragement to carry us through a particularly dark valley. So we should long to experience him more deeply. But in the end, whatever we do or whatever we don't experience in this life, Mountaintop experiences are a preview of eternity. They're a picture of what God promises to everyone who trusts and follow Jesus. When the, that one day Jesus will return with great power and glory. And his glory will be unmistakable. And every eye will see him. Are you ready for that day? If you've come to trust him as your Savior and Lord, you can be ready for that day. You can know promise of his of the forgiveness of sins and life eternal isaiah 25 looks forward to that ultimate mountaintop experience isaiah looked and said on this mountain the lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples the veil that is spread over all nations he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So let's wait and trust in the Lord and look to him as we prepare for that glorious day. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. For your son Jesus we thank you for sending him to earth we thank you for the revelation of his glory to these disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration we thank you Lord for the ways that uh, you remind us and show us your reality and your goodness and your greatness Lord through uh, both natural and spiritual mountaintop experiences we thank you also for how you prepare us for the valleys and Lord help us when we walk through long and dark valleys to remember that you're the same good shepherd who is the glorious Lord and we pray that we would long for eternity and look forward to that day, that we would long for more of you in this life, and that we would ultimately uh, trust that, that you will give us enough to carry us through to the end. Lord, as we prepare to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper, we pray that we remember the sacrifice that you have made for us. Lord, that we would remember uh, that you carried the cross up to the hill, the top of the hill, and hung on that cross that you might bear our sins and suffer and die on our behalf so we might be reconciled with you. And Lord, we find our hope in what you've done for us. We pray that we might see your glory more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.